Thanks for tuning into Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Here in Charlottesville, it's starting to feel like the threat of COVID-19 is finally subsiding. People are out and about, sometimes unmasked, and maybe you're starting to travel again. Well, today we're going to touch base with Jesse Higgins at Charlottesville Tomorrow to hear about the vaccination process here in the Blue Ridge Health District and the differences between state COVID policy and local COVID policy. And in the second half of the show, we go on a little field trip to a new interactive outdoor sculpture garden at the Kluge Room. I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Annie Parnell and Jesse Higgins. I'm joined today by Jesse Higgins, who is the lead reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. And today we're going to talk about COVID-19. So, Jesse, how many positive cases of COVID-19 are we seeing in the Blue Ridge Health District right now? So for the last couple of weeks, the health district has seen about, I don't know, an average of three to four to five cases per day, which is way down from where we were even a month ago and incredibly down from some of our highs. So Albemarle County also has a pretty high rate of vaccinations, and you've reported that there are similarly high rates we're seeing in Loudoun County and other D.C. area Virginia suburbs. What is it that's made vaccine distribution so effective here? Albemarle, at least a week ago, was in the lead for the percentage of people vaccinated in, in a locality in the state by just a little bit. But as opposed to like looking at the county and saying, okay, why specifically here? Why did this area do so well? It kind of is more helpful to take a step back and look at counties in general that do well. So what do these counties, what do these areas have in common? And in Virginia, the story is kind of similar to really the rest of the country, which is basically more affluent areas tend to be more well vaccinated. So the more affluent counties in Virginia have, as a general rule, higher vaccination rates. Now, Albemarle is not necessarily the most affluent county in Virginia, so there's a whole host of other aspects to consider for, you know, why this area has done well. It's well-educated. There's a lot of people who hold bachelor's degrees. I think it's more than 50% of Albemarle County has either a bachelor's degree or higher, um, which is pretty high comparatively, but still not the highest. So it's hard to say exactly why Albemarle was in the lead, but it's you know pretty easy to pinpoint the things that tend to positively influence vaccination rates. Within Charlottesville, we are seeing that people in predominantly black communities are getting vaccinated at a much lower rate than those who live in predominantly white areas. What factors are at play there? So there's a lot of theories as to why that is. And one of the stories that we're going to be doing in the upcoming weeks is really going into the neighborhoods and trying to see what's really happening in our community. Because from my experience, the the explanations that make sense on a national level also tend to make sense here locally as well. They tend to be the case locally. But there's always, you know, each community is different. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what's happening in some of these neighborhoods. So some good news, though, is that our health district does have high rates of vaccination for Latino populations when compared to the rest of the state and the country. Why is that? 
So in, in our area specifically, a lot of things came together really in the favor of our local Latina community. So at the very, very start of the pandemic, a doctor at UVA launched this um, Iniciativa de Salud Latina, the Latino Health Initiative. There were other things that contributed, obviously, to the success of vaccinating the Latina community. But, but that initiative really, I think, deserves a lot of attention and praise. From the very beginning of the pandemic, long before there was a vaccine, they had their eye on vaccinations. They created kind of a plan to begin outreach in our local Latina community in order to establish that relationship. They put literature and signs up in local tiendas and restaurants and other places that, you know, Latina people frequent uh, in order to, like, distribute that information about, like, testing and just what coronavirus is, how to prevent it, that sort of thing, and, and just make that connection. So when it came time to begin vaccinating, or when it came close to being vaccinating, they switched their message a bit and started putting up signs that said, the end is near, this is the light at the end of the tunnel. And meanwhile, you have to remember that throughout the pandemic, the Latina community here and everywhere has suffered a lot from the pandemic. They had higher case rates. Um, they had worse health outcomes in general than other races um, for a myriad of reasons. They were tended to be frontline workers and tended to live in close proximity with you know lots of friends and relatives, all things that viruses love. And when it came time to vaccinate, the Latina community was perhaps a little more eager to hear that and to take advantage than, you know, groups that didn't see quite that same health impact. So once they submitted that, you know, the end is nigh, it's, it's time for your vaccine, uh, then they started planning ways to get the vaccine literally into those communities. So they hosted vaccine events where they actually went to places like Southwood, which has a large Latina community and other places. I, I think that that really contributed to the high vaccination rate among Latinas that we see here. To redirect to the city's general COVID policies, right now Charlottesville's COVID state of emergency is set to continue into the fall despite the fact that Virginia's expired on July 1st. I'm wondering, what are the local public health measures that are currently in place, and how are they different from the state's? For the most part, most of the things in Charlottesville state of emergency that would impact people in their daily life have been removed. So um, there's no longer mask mandates. Uh, there's no longer uh, gathering size restrictions. All the things that we saw and endured during the pandemic are gone. However, the one thing that the state of emergency does allow Charlottesville to continue to do is operate in their pandemic world a little bit longer. So normally Virginia law wouldn't allow a, a locality like Charlottesville to hold virtual meetings. They have to be in person unless there's a state of emergency. So the state of emergency remains in order to allow Charlottesville to continue holding virtual meetings until they do away with it, which their plan is to do away with it in September. Obviously, that could change. 
the other thing is it allows government offices to stay partially closed. Um, there are some government offices that are opened, but it's not like it was before. And the final thing, I believe it's the final thing that it does, is requires uh, masks in, in government offices and city properties. So they are the only places left really in the city where you have to wear a mask. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's what the Charlottesville State of Emergency does. On the topic of the state of emergency, our Commonwealth's attorney recently pledged not to prosecute cases of mask wearing as a COVID precaution under Virginia's public mask ban. Do you anticipate a similar pledge to happen on the statewide level? So that law in Virginia was enacted in 1950, and the purpose was to stop Ku Klux Klan members from covering their faces and torturing people and tormenting them and all the other atrocious acts that they were doing at that time. It was specifically written in order to give police and prosecutors another tool to stop those actions. But of course, it's pretty broad, like has pretty far-reaching implications. So over the years, the state general assembly has added exemption after exemption after exemption to that law, and so the exemptions are pretty um, pretty substantial at this point. So our local prosecutors looked at this law, like many others did, when it became clear that you know the state of emergency was ending, and the state of emergency specifically suspended this law for the purpose of allowing people to wear masks. So. When that expired for the state, suddenly this law became like questionable again. So the local prosecutors looked at it and found a few, found two exemptions already in the law that they believe makes it uh, moot in terms of people wearing it for COVID. But uh, because of that, because there's still that lingering little bit of doubt, the governor has asked the General Assembly to take this law out, dust it off, and maybe add yet another exemption specifically for this situation so that there is no doubt if you would like to wear a mask in order to protect yourself from COVID, you may. So what are some of those other historical exemptions? So when I was first researching this, one of the first stories that I found was a TV station, I'm not sure where, um, did a story about, hey, careful, if you're an adult and you're wearing a Halloween mask, you're breaking the law. Well, that's one of the first exemptions, actually. Halloween masks don't count. So if you're wearing a mask for Halloween, you're okay. Also, if you're at a masquerade ball, you may wear a mask. That's a written exemption. And then there's some pretty broad ones, engaged in professions, trades, employment, or other activities and wearing protective masks, which are deemed necessary for physical safety of the wearer or other persons. That uh, is very broad, especially when you consider other activities could mean literally anything. That's one of the exemptions that the uh, local attorneys found. Uh, they, they found that other activities could include, you know, living life and <laughs> the wearing masks to protect themselves from COVID would be protective. So to go back to this question of hesitancy to get the vaccine, is it looking at all like the vaccine's new availability to younger generations might help with this lingering problem of people being reluctant to get it? In other words, if children are able to get vaccinated, could their parents also want it? You know, as far as reaching hesitant people, there was a, a a community outreach worker at the Blue Ridge Health District that I talked to recently who 
was basically saying, you know, at, at this rate, we're really going person by person. Like, it's not really about reaching this group of people who are hesitant for this reason. Because when you have someone who's hesitant, um, who's, who has, you know, concerns about getting this vaccine for whatever reason, their, their personal concerns, um, and, and they're going to vary by each individual. And it's really going to take, I think in a lot of cases, that one-on-one discussion with that individual, find out, you know, why are you hesitant to get this vaccine? Is it because you have misinformation? Can I clarify that? Um, are you concerned? Like, do you need to talk to a doctor? Like, like so as you know, the country is really reaching this point, I think, and certainly we're seeing it here where uh, outreach groups and our, you know, health workers and our health district are, you know, basically going door to door. Like they're, they're going to people where they are talking to them and, and really, you know, doing a dose here, a dose there. And that's what it's going to be, I think, for a while. Jesse Higgins is the lead reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. In our next segment, our assistant producer, Katherine Hansen, takes us on an audio tour of Breathe With Me, a new outdoor sculpture trail at the Kluge Rue, created by UVA sculpture students and their professor, Bill Bennett. There's a, a quote that I can't find, but it's in my mind that um, it's by one of the English landscape artists who described his work as being a trail or a journey, and that as he goes on these walks, when he stops, he makes things, he rearranges things. So he calls um, sculptures a stopping point on the journey. And uh, I think that's what we've done here, and I, I like that very much. Today we'll take a journey to the Kluge Rue Aboriginal Art Museum to explore Breathe With Me, a wandering sculpture trail. So we're in the backyard of the Kluge Rue looking at the sculpture garden, Breathe With Me. Right now in front of us are walking sticks that were designed by UVA art students. And they let the grass grow up so that they could mow a path that takes you through all of these mindfulness prompts and different sculptures. So here we are at the beginning with our walking sticks and we'll go through. So this outdoor exhibition is called Breathe With Me, a wandering sculpture trail. It is situated in the backyard of the Kluge Rue Aboriginal Art Collection of the University of Virginia. It is a mowed path through tall grass with 13 sculptures that are situated along that path. That was Lauren Maupin, the Manager of Education and Programming at the Kluge Rue Aboriginal Art Collection of the University of Virginia. 
She was the lead coordinator for the Kluge Rue on the Breathe With Me Sculpture Trail project. She's going to tell us more about the origins of this exhibition. It started in January. We, as a staff, were trying to figure out how we were going to program the museum this summer. And so we started brainstorming ideas um, for how we could use the outdoor space in a really meaningful and innovative way. So when we were thinking about what to do outside, my mind went to Bill Bennett. My name is William Bennett. I'm an associate professor of art at the University of Virginia. I oversaw the project from the UVA art department side. Bill, Lauren, and their respective departments had collaborated before, but until this year, they had never worked on an outdoor series. I have for a long time have thought that our backyard needed to be populated with sculpture. Um, I just sort of saw it as a blank canvas. And so I thought, well, what if, what if Bill could walk his students through creating sculptures for this space? And we hit the ground running on the first day of class, February 1st. And we were on, on grounds here at February 3rd, looking at, looking at sites and planning, planning the event. Central to the theme of this project is Dadity, the Aboriginal practice of deep listening and quiet awareness. Lauren and Bill will tell us more about this concept as the inspiration for the sculpture prompt. Dadity is a concept that has been promoted and expanded upon greatly by um, an Aboriginal woman named Miriam Rose Ungenmer Bauman, and she defines Dadity as deep listening and sort of a silent awareness. She has this wonderful quote where she says, when I experience Dadity, I am made whole again. I can sit on the riverbank or walk through the trees. Even if someone close to me has passed away, I can find my peace in this silent awareness. There is no need of words. A big part of Dadity is listening. There is no need to reflect too much and to do a lot of thinking. It is just being aware. I, I thought it was actually a, a beautiful way to think about how, how, we, how we as a culture or how people respond to artwork. That in my mind, it is a contemplative thing. It's a meditative thing. You know, for me, it borders on the spiritual. Before we continue on our journey, Bill and Lauren will tell us more about the students who created these incredible sculptures. My students are undergraduates. They're double majors. (laughs) They're involved in all sorts of things. This, This was an ambitious project. I also designed a project for my, my first semester sculpture students. And that was to make walking sticks or wandering sticks that would be accessible to visitors um, to take along this journey through the trail. You know, these sculptures are not like sculptures inside of a museum where you can't interact with them. They are meant to be interacted with. And so in the way that the sculptors have sort of planned for people to interact with them is really poetic and beautiful, I would say. In the middle of the project, probably around February or March, we were in touch with Jamie Siet, a professor at the 
Contemplative Sciences Center of the University of Virginia. And her class that she teaches is called Mindfulness in Nature. She partnered with us to have her students write a series of contemplative prompts for visitors to do between looking at the sculptures. Now that we've introduced the project and the many university and community members who worked on it along the way, let's begin our journey through the Kluge Roo. We are looking at Path of Life, Sun, Earth, Roots by Stephanie DeHart. There are a ring of sunflowers that are in the process of growing right now. They're about a foot high. (laughs) Right across from this sculpture is Singing Sundial from Parker Pierce. Next on the sculpture trail is Together Forever, Forever Together from Isabella Whitfield. So the name of my sculpture is Together Forever, Forever Together. Uh, It's a fun fun little rhyme. Isabella Whitfield was a student sculptor as a fifth-year fellow through the UVA Studio Art Department. Basically, there are two double grave plots dug about four feet deep in a field outside the Kluge Roo, and on alternating sides of each grave plot, there's an earthen staircase that runs down from the ground-level surface of the four-foot hole to the bottom of the plot. And the space at the bottom of each grave is covered in rocks that were excavated during the digging process, and the dirt from each plot Um, has been mixed together and compiled in in this ginormous sort of dirt pile, which is like directly adjacent to the two holes. Surrounding all of that, I kind of did a collaboration with a poet. Um, Her name is Maggie Weaver. She generously let me use her work. Removal and absence can be an informative factor in creating artwork. So it doesn't always have to be like an additive method. Like a lot of sculptures with outdoor spaces, they're made in the studio and then brought outside. But I kind of wanted to do something where it worked directly with the land and it was informed more by what wasn't there just as much as what was. As you continue along the trail from Isabella's sculpture, you reach Omphalos Oculus, the sculpture from Professor Bill Bennett. Omphalos Oculus is the third in his Omphalos series, but the first to be installed outdoors. I spoke to Bill about his sculpture and the meaning behind its components. Okay, so my project is called Omphalos Oculus, and the Omphalos is a name for a place on the earth that's considered to be uh, a navel of the earth. The Amphalos part is, is this notion of being connected to the earth and, and actually in this sculpture looking, looking into the earth or apparently looking into the earth. So the oculus part of the sculpture is about kind of looking up or looking out. I wanted a, a spot that would be approached from below and allow a viewer to ascend to the sculpture. So there's a beautiful spot toward the end of the sculpture trail where that happens. Viewers, uh, as they approach my piece, they have to walk up the hill. And they're walking up the hill and viewing a kind of miniature mound. But they have two pathways that are available to them. And then they go to the backside of the mound. And at the backside of the mound, once they're there, then they're confronted with four stairs and the four stairs allow them to climb the mound and be at this special space 
It's a space where they, there's a little telescope that allows them to look into the earth. In order for them to, or for a participant to view into the earth, to view into this little telescope, they have to kneel. So I was, um, you know, trying to get people to be close to the earth, close to the earth in a, in a, in a physical way. There's other things going on too. So once you look into the little Oculus uh, telescope, you see you're in a dark world, but it's a world that's dark like the night sky, filled with stars and filled with a, a kind of a constellation of pinpoints of light. The actual method for this sky to be uh, reproduced in the oculus is through fiber optics. And so there's this starburst of 300 fiber optic cables that come out of a diving helmet. Also central to the theme of this project is the visitor's active participation with the artwork. From the walking sticks to the sculptures, each part of this exhibition invites the visitor to participate in some way. Bill, Lauren, and Isabella all spoke to me about the importance of participation and ceremony throughout this project. You know, in Australia with Aboriginal artists, and art, art is something that is interacted with. You know, objects are made for ceremony. Paintings in art centers, people are sitting on them while they're painting them. There are dogs running across them. There are babies crawling on them. And people have their cup of tea sitting on their painting, you know, while they're uh, working on it. And so, you know, the way that artists interact with their works is just is very participatory and very familiar and intimate in that way. The ceremonial is, is very tied to all humans. And I think uh, the participatory quality of the trail is, is part of that sacred tradition of putting yourself in a special place. So in our world, which is becoming so virtual in many ways, sculpture offers the possibility for touch for the feel of materials, for, the, um, for walking through a space. I've always been drawn to the act of digging and um, kind of see, see the act of digging in this project in particular as, as a performative thing. And it kind of co-mingles with, with like another discipline of performance art, even though, you know, there isn't an active performer there. And I like the kind of the poetic nature of digging a hole by hand, not using like heavy machinery or equipment. The Breathe With Me Sculpture Trail invites visitors to not only interact with the artwork, but also with nature. Bill, Lauren, and Isabella all shared with me what the relationship between art and nature means to them through their artwork and curation. So I actually have been kind of more and more concerned about what art making means on a larger environmental scale. I think what draws me to making earthworks and and works that use what is already present in the environment is this kind of aspiration to be both environmentally conservative in what I in what I use and being able to I guess convert the landscape back to what it was before. There's there's been an environmental thread that runs through my work for a long time, but um, 
you know, the, th the thread is pretty strong here in the connection of ourselves as people on the earth in relationship to these bigger forces. All of the pieces have a kind of an environmental uh, undercurrent. When you come to Hoogie Roo, you're confronted with this intimacy that a lot of Aboriginal artists have where art and what they call country, which is really all of nature in, in the land specifically that they belong to, you, you know, you're, you're really confronted with that reality for the artist in, in lots of different ways. I think the, one of the beautiful things about the sculpture trail is that I think all of the works in one way or another embody that connection for these, for the, the sculptor. What has been the most surprising thing about this journey? This particular project really highlighted the need to ask for help when you need it. Because I, I guess beforehand, um, was kind of very independent-minded and wanting to be able to do everything by myself and to have all the artwork that I do just have my singular hand in it. But with this project, and since it required so much physical labor and so much time, it just really wasn't possible for me to do without without reaching out and really assembling a team of people to get this done. And it made me realize that if I want to do projects like this in the future, if I want to do something even more ambitious in the future, that I'm going to need to keep asking for that help and also keep returning it to other people. I think, you know, one of the big surprises was that it's really developed my own connection to this place. I've worked at Kluge Roof for 10 years. I've never walked the backyard as far as we did on the first day. Never in 10 years. And we've discovered so many amazing things about this specific place. And so I think as much as I knew we would get really interesting quality works from the students and from the UVA sculpture community in general, I was definitely surprised by the level of ambition and work that was put into it. Visitors can come experience the trail during regular museum hours. The museum is open Tuesday through Saturday from 10 to 4, Sundays from 1 to 5, and on Thursdays, the museum is open until 8 p.m. This exhibition opened May 21st and will be open until October 17th. The trail is not ADA accessible. You can make a reservation or find more information on kluge-ru.org. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producers this week are Annie Parnell and Katherine Hansen. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. <laughs>